This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Jamal Dejani. My co-host, Jess Ghanem, is on a special assignment. This week, Americans and people across the globe saw the horrific images taken inside an old warehouse in South Texas where hundreds of immigrant children were held in a series of cages created by metal fencing. One cage had 20 children inside, uh, scattered uh, about are bottles of water, bags of chips, and large foil sheets intended to serve as blankets. Most people, I think, by now have listened to the horrific pleas by these children, and people were shocked. Joining, joining us to discuss this issue and more Again, in the house right here is Liz Jackson. For those of you who don't know Liz, Liz is a founding staff attorney for Palestine Legal and cooperating counsel with the Center for Constitutional Rights. Her work includes representing students, professors, and activists on free speech and academic freedom issues, documenting the chilling effect of repression campaigns and educating activists on their rights. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Liz. Thanks. Great so, to be back. so first, I want to know your reaction to what had happened, both from a legal perspective and, and probably also from a humanitarian one. And second, we'll talk about Trump's executive order. Okay. So, I mean, to start, you know, I'm not an immigration lawyer or immigration policy expert. So, um, you know, my my reaction is is mostly from, you know, a humanitarian perspective and as a mother um, and as a Jewish mother. And I do have a lot of connections to draw between my work uh, defending activists who advocate for Palestinian rights and looking at the crackdown on dissent and what is in the way the dehumanization of people at, at all borders. So my reaction to what we saw this week is absolute horror. I know we all share that. And how could it be that the uh, you know extremists in the Trump administration and elsewhere have got have and our whole society has gotten to the point of dehumanizing people, refugees, fleeing terror, that we, we think of them as so unhuman that we could do that to them at our own borders and that it could go on for months until we were able to muster the outrage enough to put a temporary stop. And I, I, my, my other reaction legally is everyone should know that the so-called executive order that Trump issued yesterday, which of course, as the New York Times pointed out, could have been just a phone call, but it was a lot of fanfare, really doesn't change much. Families, parents, and children are still in cages, are still separated. Those babies crying on the floor of the warehouse in Texas are still there and will be for who knows how long. So legally, not much has changed. Legally, you're right. I mean, I mean, do you think this is all an act now? And of course, I have to say, maybe a little uh, probably praise to the people who voiced their outrage to force an administration which uh, which never apologizes, basically, that this is Trump to kind of retract their action by at least now saying, OK, we're no, no longer yes. are going to be uh, separating the um, 
the families. Yeah. One of the parallels I want to draw to the Palestine movement and my work legally is the importance of defending truth tellers. Because really, you know, in this case, if there are any heroes here, it's the journalists who were able to expose that and what it took to muster the public outrage for people to protest and hit the streets weekend after weekend and get this out in the media and in the public conversation to the point that even Ivanka Trump was complaining about it. I mean, that level of public outrage is very challenging to... Uh, to build and the journalists built that and all of the many truth tellers who really fought through all of the noise and the non stories about this tweet that we to make this known to the public and that is one of the key things that that we work on at Palestine Legal and other people is the importance of defending dissent and defending journalists and defending just regular social media activists who are today's journalists who are exposing human rights abuses and the, the importance of getting that in the public, I think is one of the big lessons that we saw this week. Well, because uh, as you've mentioned, they've done a great job in exposing it because initially they were in denial. They went on the offensive ra rather, you know, from, you know, the head of ICE to um, Trump to all the pundits saying, you know, you know, we're protecting our borders. You're protecting your borders from like infants. I mean, this this was the yeah. excuse from and refugees and from refugees terror. and fleeing, you know, U.S. policy in their countries and economic devastation to the point that they can't live and have to, you know, bring their babies to face the situation at the border. I mean, these are not people who want to be in this situation. And then there is the spin machine. That's why I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the kind of the spin, the Trump's executive order, which you've mentioned, like, as the New York Times mentioned, all what he did, needed to do is make a phone call to his, I guess, to his attorney general to, to, to stop, you know, separating the families. But now they're kind of trying to spin it like this is, you know, the making of Congress and other, uh, you know, former president and, and so forth. And he's saving the day by issuing, you know, this executive order. And today we saw uh, Melania Trump go to Texas to go to the border. But I don't know if you saw her. No, I didn't she's, see this. She's this wearing this coat that says, I don't care. I don't know. This is maybe what? news to you. Yeah, you maybe you'll, you'll I'll show you Ironic? this. Ironic. Okay. No, no, this is not. But I said today, I mean, look at, you know, she, she went to the um, to the border uh, yeah. in the southern border Presumably in Texas. To yeah. Make a, a fake news show of. Compassion. Yeah, exactly. But she's wearing a long coat that says on it, I don't care in the back. First, I thought it was a some sort of a Photoshop, but yeah. it's not. And I mean, it's a sick joke. Yeah, exactly. It's a sick joke. I mean, there's so many things that are just unimaginable that sound like sick jokes, but you know, it are are real actions that this administration is taking against all of us. My God. So, she, what was her job at the border to show? It's a PR. Yeah. I think it's a PR stunt. But even even they couldn't deliver on this PR stunt. They had to make another spectacle out of yeah. it. She couldn't go humbly and say, you know, we're wrong. This is not right. I'm a yeah. mother. I don't want to see toddlers crying, you know. Yeah. 
and, and so forth. Instead, she wears this coat that says, I don't care. I don't know what message she had behind it. You know, you could interpret this as maybe she doesn't care for Donald Trump. <laughs> maybe she wants to seek asylums, <laughs> asylum in Mexico <laughs> and run away from the White House. I don't know, but it was God, so bizarre. Funny. It was a totally bizarre sight. But, you know, I also want to say something, you know, I mean, in a way, I mean, people should celebrate the pressure, but but in reality, we shouldn't celebrate and get fooled by this oh, order. Yeah. Oh, no, the work is just beginning. Yeah, because... Nothing has changed legally. Yeah. I have been reading a lot of things, you know, number one, families will not be imme- immediately kind of united uh, and, and oh, where no. they're going to be and placed. And it's a bureaucratic morass. No one knows where their children are. Even if the even the administration wanted to immediately reunite families, I mean, who who knows with the records? I mean, and a lot of these families are are non, non-native Spanish speakers and not literate in Spanish and can't. They, they, they don't know where their children are. Yeah, and then And the also, children don't know where their parents are, and, so... And they're still... And they're still... They haven't lifted, uh, I guess, the order not to charge them with... Uh, criminally. They're charged criminally for trying, basically, to make a better life, trying to cross here. So they're still... Uh, are charged uh, with a criminal offense. Exactly. And many, many of them have asylum claims, meaning under... U.S. law, there is a path for them to be here legally. They have an asylum claim to make, and they have a right for their asylum claim to be heard. And, you know, so so a lot of work, people shouldn't kind of, like, let down their guards and make sure that they see this this through. And definitely we, ha- we need to have some, some yeah. sort of a change. And I cannot also, uh, I mean, I know your work, you know, at Palestine Legal and working, and we'll we'll get to that in in a in a in a minute. But for me personally, also these images, and and the outrage, and I can tell you, for decades, we've we've seen Palestinian children being dragged in the middle of the night, yeah. you know, at 4 a.m. by by the Israeli troops, or or uh, arrested right on the street, and so many minors. And young boys and, and young girls, of course, the biggest case recently that people heard of was Ahd Tamimi, but there who's are... Who's still in prison, of course. Still in, who's still in prison. So so, yeah. so the, this kind of sight is, is not shocking in, in a way. And the sight of also Palestinian children, actually, and also adults held in similar cages. Yes. And African migrants yes. who try to make it up north from Africa through Israel. Also refugees fleeing and un- refugees. unimaginable conditions, just simply seeking to survive, caged. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is, you know, a common sight, you know, on a global level in the dehumanization of the other. And this is what the Trump administration has been doing from day one, dehumanizing, you know, Muslims, Arabs, brown people, etc. You know, attacking the LGBT community. Everyone is kind of like the other. It's kind of this thing has accelerated. But particularly closing your borders to refugees fleeing unimaginable cruelty, that really requires a heightened dehumanization because these are people who are suffering, who if you think of them as a mother just like you, 
you know, or a cousin or a person who wants to just live just like you, you can't keep them out. So it requires dehumanizing them in order to get society to support the kind of lockdown cages and walls at the, you know, Israeli, you know, the, the, the border, the, the border wall on Palestine, that apartheid wall or the U.S.-Mexico border wall. We, you know, the, we have to think of these people as not human in order to, to keep the wall up. And so these story, telling stories about people really breaks down that dehumanization, mm-hmm. getting it in the news. I mean, in a way, they're connected because you're right. You mentioned the wall. And this is what Trump wants to do. He wants to build that wall. And in in a way, his action is basically reflects this. You know, anyone who comes from the southern border is is a criminal because after all, he wants to shut down that border. has, Has congratulated Trump on his border wall policy, of course. You're absolutely right. I mean, they kind of like feed feed uh, of each other. Did you see um, the Facebook post by Leila uh, Haddad, the author of Gaza Mom and Gaza Kitchen? She posted uh, about her memories of you know having her breast her exclusively breastfed infant son ripped from her arms so she could be interrogated at the border. And, uh, you know, just recalling the physical experience of begging to keep her son in her arms while she was interrogated and the refusal and just the physical experience of being separated for hours and hours, um, you know, while with engorged breasts and the kind of physical cruelty of that experience. And for her, you know, her Thank God her she was able to reunite with her son after a long interrogation, but that that experience is, um, like you said, well known to Palestinians. Uh, It's really moving. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've actually didn't see this one. I mean, uh, last post I I read actually uh, uh, about her recollection uh, about, uh, sadly, Anthony Bourdain, who went to to Gaza and and she cooked with him and showed him around. And so forth, but but I I know about her work, and obviously, uh, people who are in Palestine, and I've I've spoken to many of uh, the people who are my friends, or they've sent me things on Facebook, and they're following this closely, along with the rest of the world, and saying, this is what we've been going through for so many years. Yeah, I mean I mean this resonates uh, definitely yeah. with all of them. Yeah. I wanted to also mention the uh, sickening hypocrisy on Refugee Day yesterday by the ADL and others in, you know, institutionalized large Israel proxy organizations in the U.S. who spoke out against the U.S. family separation policy and said, we won't stand for this. (laughs) I just thought, oh, my God, you know, but you support institutionalized child abuse in Israel of Palestinian children and you support criminalizing and censoring those of us in the US who oppose it and yet you think that you have them <laughs> yeah just and I mean I'm glad that so many people including Israel proxy organizations in the US did a you know did speak out against the Trump policy but um, you know, we we should oppose child abuse for everyone. 
You're absolutely right. I mean, you could detect the hypocrisy. And this is not the first time. It's always like, you know, um, yeah. you know, they're they're selective in their human rights issues. Yeah. Which, yeah. I think know, that really hit a nerve for me because of, uh, you know, because of the, the Jewish Holocaust experience. And so many of us question, uh, you know, how you grow up asking how how did how could that have happened? How is it possible that all of these that that German society allowed this extermination to happen in front of their noses and sent their Jewish neighbors away to concentration camps? And you know, and and I I got a text from my mom saying, oh, now I understand that. Um, look at how this is happening in front of our, you know, in front in this, this is happening in our own country. And there's so much comparison to the warehouses of children at the border and Nazi concentration camps that, you know, hearing those comparisons really hit a nerve um, when I saw the ADL's tweet about how we won't let this stand. Well, actually, uh, this is uh, almost a, a good segue to the next topic we, we, we are going to be discussing mm-hmm. because we are going to be discussing the issue of Jewishness and, and who defines this and uh, a new law uh, basically that defines anti or redefines anti-Semitism right here uh, in the United yeah. States. A proposed new law, which we will fight. A proposed one. So, so first, I, I want to start first by the troubling news which uh, you know and uh, uh, the, the recent move by the Trump administration to basically uh, hire Kenneth Marcus as and he he went through the confirmations and he has been confirmed as the top civil rights enforcer at the Department of Education and so he'll lead this department's office of civil rights and uh, I don't know if our listeners, but and I'll let you tell us a little bit about yeah. Kenneth Marcus. But just briefly, Marcus uh, is the head of the Brandeis Center for Human Rights and an Israel advocacy group that has for years worked to smear Palestinians and Palestine solidarity activism as and and conflated it with anti-Semitism. Uh, just uh, a word of caution, uh, the, this organization has no affiliation with the better known Brandeis University because kind of it's also... Yeah. Dece- and Justice Brandeis would be rolling over Exactly, deceiving. So they use this. So, so, so Marcus's previous effort in, in this his organization, this ill-named Brandeis Justice Center, uh, have been funded by David Horowitz and David Pipes. He also received funding from the Koch Brother Donor Capital Fund. Oh, really? Um, you know, in other words, he'll be right at home in the Trump White House. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, this guy is just like all of other Trump's appointees, is someone who uh, is there to undermine the purpose of the agency, which is to protect the civil rights of all students. But Marcus has a record um, of a clear record of uh, opposing civil rights. His has worked for years to pressure the government and pressure universities to censor and punish speech supportive of Palestinian rights by equating it with anti-Semitism. So he, 
he is the architect of a theory to abuse civil rights law. So just like Scott Pruitt doesn't believe in environmental regulation but is heading the EPA, or just like DeVos is fundamentally opposed to the mission of public education but is there to lead the Department of Education, Marcus is fundamentally opposed to civil rights, protecting civil rights for all students, but there he is, another fox guarding the hen house as the head of civil rights for the Department of Education. It's a major assault on free speech. And he's very much connected to what's now uh, the so-called Anti-Semitism Awareness Act that your organization and civil rights groups, uh, ACLU and others, are trying to basically stop. And just a little background, because I know first we heard about this act was in 2016, right? That's right. And and without a debate or an actual vote, the U.S. Senate kind of sneakily and stealthily passed uh, passed it first, right? Uh, uh, passed a legislation piece called the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act of 2016, and and that bill would have required the Department of Education to apply a state a dep- a state department uh, working definition of anti-Semitism in evaluating complaints of discrimination on U.S. campuses, but uh, it basically didn't pass the House, so didn't go through. So now they're trying to reincarnate it with few changes. Tell us, tell us about it. Uh, no changes, actually. They've essentially reintroduced the same act. So what you said was exactly right. Um, in the wake of uh, the Trump election and the horrifying resurgence and white supremacy and bigotry of all kinds, including anti-Semitism, um, we wish Congress would take forceful action to address all forms of resurging white supremacy. But no, instead, Congress's grand act is to introduce uh, a law which would basically, in a sort of cynical, uh, very very cynical kind of taking advantage of the rise in anti-Semitism to slip in this definition, which would, yes, equate virtually all criticism of Israeli policy as anti-Semitic. So taking advantage of the rise of anti-Semitism, pretending to address anti-Semitism, but in fact only crushing student activists' ability to criticize Israeli policy. It failed, but it's back. So what what stage is it at now? So, um, and I also just wanted to mention before we get into kind of where it's at procedurally, this is Ken Marcus's grand project. This is one of um, his great legal theories, which is that... uh, anti-Semitism should be defined and codified as including criticism of Israel and then restricted and shut down under civil rights law. So that's his strategy and theory to abuse civil rights law. So the act is now introduced in both houses of Congress, in the Senate, in the House. It doesn't have many sponsors, um, but we'll see. It is a major legislative priority for the ADL, who pretends to be out there fighting real anti-Semitism, but sadly is out there restricting free speech rights to talk about Israel. Uh, So it's a major legislative priority for the Israel lobby. So it it will be a big fight. 
but the reason it failed last time is because it's also a big fight for free speech organizations. ACLU opposed it, and many other civil liberties advocates saw the danger in, in the federal government coming in and telling people what they can and can't say. And the threat is that the Department of Education can revoke federal funding if it thinks that a college or a university is allowing too much criticism of Israel. And Mr. Marcus is there. So so now uh, there is a change in leadership. Exactly. So Marcus, this is one of his singular focus projects. So this is like his baby. So he will certainly be trying to apply his definition or his redefinition of anti-Semitism in order to abuse civil rights law to crush criticism of Israel on campus. He will be doing that. Um, he will be hard at work and, and unfortunately already is. He was confirmed on June 7th. But if he has legislative authority from Congress to use this definition, it will be much harder to oppose him. We will oppose him regardless because whatever Congress says, that doesn't change the fact that it's a very clear violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution for the federal government or universities and public schools to be punishing students or faculty or anyone else because they're speaking too critically of Israel. That is a clear First Amendment violation. So we will fight it on that basis no matter what. But we, it's a big fight to stop Congress from endorsing this definition. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there is a big debate about the definition of Jewishness, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, just like I hate when people come who know nothing about Palestine and uh, they want to kind of define Palestinian nationalism, I, I also believe it's up to the Jews to decide what's what's Jewishness and what's anti-Semitism and, and whatever. Mm -hmm. But there is within the uh, different Jewish groups and uh, you're part of the Jewish Voice for Peace. And of course, aside from your work as a civil rights uh, yeah. attorney, uh, and it's a debate and it, it looks like the some Zionist organizations want to hijack this because we're seeing it on, I mean, now in the in the courts, but also this is something part of your work in what's going on on college campuses. Yes, and it's all connected in a way. Debating Zionism and whether there should or should not be a Jewish state is centuries old. Is a centuries old debate in the Jewish community. And in, in, there's no one Jewish community um, among Jews worldwide in the global diaspora for centuries. Since the beginning of the Zionist project, this was very controversial among Jews and still is. And one of the reasons why it's so controversial is because many Jews, like myself, believe that we need to be uh, safe in all the countries that we live all over the globe, um, and that there, it's not acceptable to have one country, which is the only country where Jews are safe. It's also not acceptable to have one country, which privileges rights for Jews, only Jews, over everyone else's rights. Um, this is 2018. I don't believe in a religious state, and I certainly don't believe in a religious state, which cannot be a democracy. So this is a vibrant debate among Jews in the U.S. and everywhere. And the idea that Israel equals Jewishness 
is a completely false narrative that right-wing Zionists have pushed and pushed and pushed and that the Israeli government is pushing from the highest levels. But this is now, of course, we know what Israel uh, has been doing for years, and now we're seeing it right here in the United States and uh, before it was in the hallways of the White House and Congress and so forth, but now it's just like taking over college campuses. And, uh, and, and you're involved in representing students. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, the connection between Marcus and then you got Horowitz and, you, and Campus Watch and all these different lawfare, the lawfare project and whatever. Um, and they're trying to silence academics, they're trying to silence students. And we talked before, we've had several times here, we've had you here before, we've had Dr. Rabab Abdel Hadi, this is on the local level. And I know there is another hearing coming up. Uh, It was supposed to be in July, but now it's, I think, August. Yeah, unclear when it will be. Yeah, that case is ongoing and will will not be resolved in the immediate future. It's going to take some time. So tell us a little bit about the work of these different groups. I mean, and how, what, steps uh, have you been taking you know yeah okay so yeah the uh, Israeli state and its proxy organizations in the US are investing heavily in punitive measures to censor uh, speech on college campuses and one and I have lots of stories to tell about how that's playing out but one of the um, most important kind of background Uh, facts to know is that one reason why is that there is a sea change in U.S. public opinion happening among young people and especially progressive young people. Uh, You know, the the public opinion is shifting towards clear sympathy for Palestinian rights. And that is an existential threat to Israel, which cannot survive in its current form without uh, the support of U.S policy and they're looking a generation down the line and it's going to look very different in Congress based on how young people think about Israel's colonial project. It's changing. So on campuses everywhere, there is lots of vibrant debate and questioning and people learning. And what especially there is, is a lot of interconnections between social movements. So black student unions fighting for black lives and the Latino student groups fighting for immigration rights and indigenous student groups, Asian student groups, a lot of, um, as the demographics on U.S. college campuses are changing and becoming, you know, just more diverse, um, more um, students from different backgrounds and from similarly coming from, you know, occupied nations and nations that have suffered from U.S. imperialist policy, they draw a lot of connections with each other. And there's a lot of concrete connections to make from Ferguson to Gaza Etc. So there's a um, a lot of vibrant student organizing happening, and a lot of debate in classrooms, and that is scaring Israel. And there is a clear, concerted, and very well documented suppression campaign. Do you want to hear some examples of kind of how this plays out? What some of the stories are? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I just wanted before you you do that to add. You know, I mean, the number one. They're getting all kinds of money from different sources, directly from the Israeli government, from Haim Saban, from Adelson right here. And uh, recently, uh, you know, uh, someone we both know, David Spiro, he, I want to give him a shout out, he wrote an article in yeah. Mondawis uh, 
entitled Silencing Pro-Palestinian Professors. And he basically was listing all these different organizations. It's like they're all connected. You know, it starts like by shaming and attacking these students and and professors. Canary Mission is one. You got Stand uh, Stand with Us, the American Israel Education Foundation. Uh, they all collaborate. I mean, you know, uh, Lawfare. You know, kind of their their legal arm. And we, you know, to basically. Yeah. And of course, the Brandeis Center, Marcus's. Brandeis Center. So, so they're all connected. Yeah. And, and we've seen some prime examples of, of their action, like from Stephen Salaita's getting him, getting the university to rescind basically his employment. Yeah, to fire him. Yeah. To, to fire him. And Dr. Rabab Abdel Hadi delivered in the ongoing lawsuits. So. How is, I mean, what's what's really, I want to know, like the strategy to kind of stand up to, to confront them in a way and expose their work? Yeah. Well, I don't know that we have a grand strategy, but the way that we view it kind of from myself, like from my movement lawyering perspective is that, um, you know, all the money in the world can't stop a truly organic uh, see change in public opinion because there's just the power of of truth and consciousness, mm-hmm. and that is very powerful. And there's been a lot of um, kind of hand wringing by these many groups that you, analysis of how come we haven't been able to crush boycott and divestment and sanctions for Palestinian rights. We've put so much money into it. How come it's still alive? And the reason is that. This is a truly grassroots movement of conscious people. Um, all the, you know, they 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 can't crush it. Um, and so, from the like I was saying, from my movement lawyering perspective, the suppression efforts are very heavy and scary for people and serious. And if we can really just run interference to protect people from the worst consequences, which we're doing pretty well, um, the activism will continue to thrive. You talked about some, uh, before I interrupted you, about some examples. I just want to, before that, I want to remind our listeners, this is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. I also want to welcome our viewers on Facebook Live. Our guest for the entire hour is uh, Liz Jackson. Liz is a founding staff attorney for Palestine Legal and Cooperating Council with the Center for Constitutional Rights. So let's talk a little bit about the real work that you've been now doing. Yeah. So we were talking before about these big high-level threats, Ken Marcus and the Department of Education um, legislation to define criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic. The way that these threats play out is that they come from high above and then they... uh, on campus, we see small acts of suppression and censorship resulting from high-level threats. So, for example, the Brandeis Center threatens to file a civil rights complaint with the Department of Education because it's tolerating too much criticism of Israel on campus. And administrators, in turn, become very scared and start cracking down to limit the controversies coming from their campuses. So, for example, 
UC Irvine there, we saw students punished because they made too much noise holding signs and chanting outside a film screening of Israeli soldiers. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, up the coast at the University of Oregon, student government there passed a boycott resolution trying to restrict uh, student government spending um, you know, and student government money going to companies that are complicit in absolutely brutal human rights abuses. A mid-level administrator there sort of enacted a self-veto, which she didn't have, and just crossed out part of the resolution and posted it online. We're still finding out more information about what she was thinking, but basically this is an example what we're seeing constantly of mid-level administrators trying to just shut all this down to avoid controversy. And by controversy, we mean complaints from Israel proxy organizations. In 2016, we saw the shutdown of an academic course at UC Berkeley on Palestine, a massive and very offensive violation of academic freedom for everyone, even people who don't know anything about Palestine. Israel were shocked that the university would step in and cancel a course mid-semester because there were complaints coming from all over the place of all of these diff many different Zionist organizations. Um, and the Israeli government ministry apparently got involved as well. So um, firings, students punished, there's the whole San Francisco State case, which we can talk about separately. It's almost too much to describe in a sentence, but lawsuits threatening faculty and students all over the place, calling them anti-Semitic and alleging that this is a violation of other Jewish students' civil rights. Um, another new trend is we're seeing increased uh, FBI and law enforcement interest in students who are supportive of Palestinian rights. I wow. heard a story about a student, uh, a law student, at Seton Hall, who uh, is young Palestinian American, who had written some emotional tweets about what's happening in Gaza, and uh, Canary Mission, this uh, anonymous blacklisting website which profiles students and professors, accuses them of being terrorists and anti-Semites, um, puts links to their social media feed, and then harasses them on Twitter and calls their employers and tags their schools. Canary Mission profiled this law student and contacted his administration and told them they have a terrorist in their midst. Wow. The administration called the FBI. The FBI came to campus, pulled this student out of class, or the administrators pulled him out of class so he wouldn't have to be too embarrassed, shut him alone in a room with two FBI agents who had his Canary Mission profile printed out in their hands where they interrogated him for 40 minutes about his loyalty to the U.S. So absolutely unbelievable. Nothing to it, completely unsubstantiated, uh, you know, punishment of, you know, a young person because he dared to speak on Twitter about the massacres in Gaza. It's like a total, basically, they really want to shred the First Amendment, really, when it comes to the issue of Palestine and Israel. I mean, you have the First Amendment, but when you, talk, when you criticize Israel, this doesn't apply. Yeah, and that we call that the Palestine exception to free speech. We've talked about it here. It's very well documented how inconsistent administrators can be when it comes to speech on Palestine, they will say very high-minded and you know beautiful phrases about how much they value free speech on campus, and um, you know, no, wait, but not that event. I mean, in in, in a way, also, uh, I know you're very humble about your work, but it's very important 
to remind our listeners and about your organization because if if we for example we've had uh, several conversations with Dr. Abdelhadi we we've had her legal team here yeah. but you actually represent the students i mean if i mean you're talking about kids yeah you know 18 19 20 years of age and they some of them have been named in this lawsuit and as you've mentioned i know a couple of them at least who had their they were directly harassed and they have nowhere to go to i mean yeah. where would somebody like this you know if you're at on campus and all of a sudden you're you know you have a part-time job and these organizations calling your your uh, employer to get you fired they're posting your picture and saying that you're a terrorist they come to you yeah and you help them pro bono yes we that's what we do we have a legal intake hotline and um you know we do a lot of law we do legal interventions we represent people we write letters um we filed one lawsuit against fordham which banned students for justice in palestine unlawfully um but a lot of what we do is counsel people on their rights so that they understand that they don't have to take it and that is one of the mo you asked earlier kind of what is our strategy we see it as this kind of key piece of offering people accessible legal support and accessible counseling in you know the moments when you feel most alone and scared that's one of the most powerful political tools we have is keeping people in the game so students who you know want to just drop out because this is all too scary you know giving them a hand to stand back up again and and helping them understand, okay, these are the worst consequences. This is how likely that is, probably not that likely, and really talking people through what, um, you know, what they, talking them through their decisions so they can make informed and wise decisions to protect themselves from the backlash and continue speaking out. I mean, uh, I know uh, your conversations are confidential, but I'm sure... Um, they must be really scared and yeah. distraught. I mean, how do you cope with that? Yeah. And and are there families involved, or or some of them maybe they're yeah. too ashamed or scared to yeah. to reach I mean, out for help. And one of the help? interesting elements of this is that it kind of really exposes who is the most vulnerable, and a lot of that has to do with race and and class privilege because the student activists who come from resourced families. Um, are much more likely to be okay because it's easier to get a job if you're profiled as a terrorist on Canary Mission if your parents know people and you have friends and you don't have to apply cold for a good opportunity but you kind of get a hookup. Um, for students who are first-generation American, first-generation college students who come from working-class families who have to work, um, you know, work their way through college, don't have those luxuries and they and their parents are much less supportive of them getting involved in controversies. So it's the same kind of race and class dynamics where students who are already privileged have more free speech rights than students who are not privileged in the in the race and class sense and they have a lot more to lose. And the sick thing is that the uh, many of the Israel proxy organizations going after students seem to seem to eerily I don't I don't know that they do it on purpose but they often pick on students who are working class and students of color Canary Mission is overwhelmingly 70% last time I counted um, 
overwhelmingly students of color or students with Arab Muslim names. So it's, um, you know, it's kind of a taking advantage of some of these, you know, kind of already power imbalances that we have and leveraging them to, to shut people up. Did you encounter any of them basically giving up and and, oh, yeah, and saying, I'm just dropping out of college, it's not for me anymore or whatever? Yeah, we've seen, I, I, can't, I can't think of an example of someone who's dropped out of college, but all over the place, people dropping out of their political work um, because they're exhausted. Uh, they can't sleep anymore and they need to just focus on their studies. Um, we see people who just say, I can't fight this. Um, I've seen um, a young Palestinian American kid who um, wore some type of Palestine t-shirt to school and someone else didn't like it and complained about it. And he was, you know, sanctioned for wearing a t-shirt and he didn't want to fight it because, you know, this is a massive free speech violation. That's like classic free speech right is that you get to wear a t-shirt with a message in support of Palestinian human rights. And he didn't want to fight it because he was so destroyed and humiliated by getting punished for that. Um, we see people just, you know, very defeated by how exhausting this is. I know also you're, you represent them as, as, as a lawyer and a human rights activist. Um, but we were talking earlier about children. You're a mother and, yeah. uh, and you are um, also a Jewish mom and you are a member of the uh, JVP. I guess what I'm trying to say, it, it touches you in a different way. It's like from different angles. Yeah. You have your professional kind of side and then you have your humanitarian side no they go together i mean we're all motivated by our human side i went to law school to do workers low-income workers rights um i didn't plan on getting into this but i was you know as a jewish student at law school i was just appalled to see lines and lines of jewish students getting up to say that this debate about divestment made them so uncomfortable we shouldn't even be allowed to have the debate. I was naive at the time. I couldn't believe it. If anything, our Jewish experience and our education for, you know, to identify with refugees means that we do whatever we can to stop Palestinian suffering, especially when it's being perpetrated in our name. I mean, this was this was very personal to me to begin with, and that's how I got into this because I would just I just was sort of fascinated by this line of of Uh, some Jewish students being propped up to say these things, and they had talking points on their chairs, of course. They left there afterwards, which encouraged them to be as emotional as they could be. Um, anyway, I, that's how I got involved, because I was you know, motivated as a witness to say that was not my experience. This is what my experience was in the lawsuit that followed, which was, by the way, uh, driven by Ken Marcus, um, now in charge of enforcing these laws. But Um, so anyway, this is you know deeply personal to me as yeah I, I think it is what, for what all about, of us to what watch about these the kids pressure that you also face yourself uh, because you're doing this. Well, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, my family I, we, has come I, along with me in um, appreciating the news sources that I share with them and a different perspective on on Israeli history and the Nakba and they've all kind of, my family's been learning with me. So I don't face the same personal pressure that other Jews face, but I do face a feeling of exclusion and just heartbreak. I mean, when I get an email from the local temple, uh, you know, come on out to, you know, oppose this 
boycott divestment resolution or, you know, when I get an email from the local temple opposing in institutionalized child abuse at the U.S.-Mexico border, but then supporting, uh, you know, the assault on Gaza um, and, you know, blaming it on or Hamas. Or supporting settlers. I'm, yeah, or supporting settlers. I'm, I'm horrified. And I think maybe that cuts me a little, you know, deeper to know that that's coming from my my local community you know i can't send my kids to the same awesome summer camp that other people would be comfortable sending their kids to because you know it's obviously completely unacceptable to have my child singing the israeli national anthem for fun so you know those things are like are challenging for me personally but that's nothing like what it means to be palestinian in this country and you know the indignities that palestinians suffer For example, university telling you it's not neutral, um, it's it's too viewpoint, it's not neutral enough to divest from Palestine as if it were neutral to be invested in Palestine. I mean, those kinds of painful things that Palestinians experience every day is nothing like... Well, you're still, you're, you're still your work. I mean, you're very much admired by me personally and a lot of our friends here in the community. We have a few minutes left. Any... Any uh, new updates on on the uh, San Francisco State case yeah. with your with your students? Yeah, because I know you represent the students versus. Yeah, there's like, a really important update actually that I wanted to share. For I don't know if I should summarize. I'm sure regular listeners know about the lawsuit against San Francisco State, the lawfare suit for yeah. sure. Any yeah. new listeners out there? I guess I can just summarize in a sentence. There is a uh, a group called the Lawfare, the Israeli, uh, the pro, the legal arm of the pro-Israel movement is suing San Francisco State, alleging that it is in violation of civil rights laws for allowing too much criticism of Israel. Um, the lawsuit targets uh, Palestinian professor and focuses um, Dr. Abdul Hadi, and then focuses a lot of its allegations, trying to prove that there's discrimination against Jewish students because of an incident uh, at the beginning of 2017 when uh, there was a group of students and some faculty and administrators, kind of a ragtag team, who dedicated hundreds of volunteer hours to put together a Know Your Rights Fair. And the Know Your Rights Fair was designed to... to help students feeling threatened by the Trump administration who had very good reason to feel threatened and scared to kind of pull together with some know your rights resources and talk about you know the political climate and how to protect yourselves. Unfortunately, Hillel, which is a Jewish group on campus, has um, a very kind of storied history with other student groups, especially student groups um, of vulnerable, representing kind of vulnerable communities like immigrants, LGBTQ, of course, Palestinians and Muslims. Hillel has a record of bullying behavior, targeting students, exposing them to blacklisting harassment websites like Canary Mission. So Hillel was not invited to have a table and have that kind of platform at the event because Hillel doesn't really help people feel safe, unfortunately. Hillel asked to have a table. The committee thought that you know Hillel's mission really didn't align with the event. There was also a lot of space capacity, so Hillel was declined. No, ta- there was n- Hillel was not invited to table at the event. And Hillel should, then I just filed. Should, should add. Other Jewish organizations were had tables, like JVP had a table. Yeah, Jewish Voice for Peace had a table, um, and you know um, Hillel was present at the event. Hillel was welcome to attend and did attend and interact with the tables, but Hillel was not invited to have an elevated platform, mm-hmm. basically because Hillel scares people, and that's sad. 
but it's the reality. So anyway, Hillel filed a discrimination complaint, and the lawsuit is also based on that discrimination complaint, and Hillel said it, this is religious discrimination. So the lawsuit is, you know, may or may not get to that. If it does, it'll be clear that it was not about religious discrimination. It was about Hillel's bullying behavior. The school, San Francisco State, investigated this issue um, and did a very thorough factual investigation and interviewed many witnesses. The school determined clearly there was no religious discrimination. This had nothing to do with Hillel being a Jewish organization. Uh, under very heavy political pressure and a media drumbeating campaign in the Zionist press and elsewhere, um, very heavy pressure on the President Wong to do something to punish someone, and of course a federal lawsuit and a state lawsuit demanding that someone be punished, the school decided, okay, well, uh, it must have been retaliation against Hillel, unlawful retaliation, and also um, view discrimination against Hillel's viewpoints. So we appealed this decision because both of those are also wrong. There was no retaliation against Hillel for it, this was about Hillel's bullying behavior. The this, the university's investigation determined that determined that one student out of a large committee had a retaliatory motive, and that a few other people on the committee had uh, a, a a sort of wrong uh, wrongly applied uh, did, d viewpoint discrimination, meaning Hillel was not was wrongly excluded from tabling at the event because of its views. So what we're down to now is that two students are, fa this, is, this is a new update, which I want everyone to hear, and we're going to ask people to oppose this, is that two students are facing sanctions now um, by the university mm -hmm. for their role. One of those students was found in the university investigation to have no role. He was not responsible, uh, but he's facing sanctions anyway. Mm. And um, the only explana possible explanation for that is that the university is under such heavy political pressure, they have to demonstrate that they have punished someone. The other student who's being, uh, who's who's now facing sanctions was um, told that she had a viewpoint discrimination motive. However, she had no ability to appeal that and there was no due process and the university appeals process said, oh, that viewpoint discrimination thing, that's kind of out of our purview, that's for someone else to decide. And then she got dumped into the sanctions bucket with absolutely no due process to say, wait, wait a second, do we have to give Hillel the, an elevated platform when everyone at the event is scared of them? How does that make sense? How does a student organized event be required to invite someone who's fundamentally you know, unaligned with the mission of the event? How does that make sense? And how is it my fault for not understanding that as a student? So these two students are facing sanctions. We're gonna put out an action alert in the coming days and ask people to contact the university because sadly, this seems to be just about raw political power and we know that our community also has a voice and this is a community institution this is the jewel of the san francisco community and so hopefully many of the listeners will have something to say about that well uh on that note i mean actually we're coming to an end to another show on kpoo 89.5 fm san francisco this is arab talk and we've had the pleasure to talk talking to Liz Jackson for the entire hour. We'll talk to you next time. Yeah, it's great to be here.